Welcome to Opto Sessions, where we interview the brightest minds from the stock market, uncovering their secrets to success. If you're looking for ideas, tips and techniques from the world's best, you're in the right place. Hi guys, I'm Ed Gotham and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions. In a minute, you're going to have a technical analysis masterclass with the one and only JC Peretz, founder of allstarcharts.com, where his motto is, it's not about being right, it's about making money. So JC has appeared frequently on all the big names, Bloomberg, CNBC, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and of course, Opto. I get a chance to dig into JC's no-nonsense approach to the markets, which has built him a large following over the years, as well as reviewing some key levels in the US indices and some exciting names put on your watch list. He's an exciting guy and genuinely one of the best ones to follow on Twitter. So if you're into the stock market, which I guess you guys are, you're going to enjoy this one. Cheers. Hi, JC. Uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, how are you doing at the moment? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. That's all right, man. Um, it's been an interesting uh, quarter and um, the month's just ended. Now, I know you're, you're a fan of the monthly bars. What's your view on, on, on the sort of major indices at the moment? Well, let's remember, um, new all-time highs are just not something we see in downtrends. New all-time highs are things we see historically when we are being rewarded for buying stocks, right? And the NASDAQ composite and the NASDAQ 100 just went out at new all-time monthly closing highs for the second consecutive month. And it's quite obvious the outperformance coming from the NASDAQ names. Why is that? Because those names are the social media stocks, the internet stocks, the internet retailers, uh, biotechnology. Those are the ones in there, not energy and transportation and financials that make up a lot more of the S&P 500, for example, and the S&P 500 simply does not look like the NASDAQ. So that stands out as quite obvious. And then when you go sector by sector, yeah, which ones are the ones making new all-time highs, breaking out of bases? The Dow Jones Internet Index, the Biotechnology Index, the Internet Retail Index, social media. I mean, those are the names breaking out. You can see it in the NASDAQ. And so quite a few people have been discussing whether or not there's some like weak sort of breadth in the market at the moment. In particular, I think people have been calling about S&P 500. Some of the stocks are still down quite a lot, and there's only a few of the big sort of tech companies that have been pulling it back up. Is it, what, what's your sort of point of view on that? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who says something like that just isn't looking at the market, right? It's just not doing the work uh, because we're not seeing that at all. Uh, quite the opposite. In fact, we're seeing more breath expansion than we've seen in 30 years. Uh, and every time we get these breath thrusts of extremes and positive momentum readings um, in terms of components, uh, we, that, that historically is a great time to be buying stocks. Not to mention the list of stocks making new 63-day highs continues to expand. Those are basically quarterly highs, three-month highs. You know, the stocks making 21-day highs, which is basically like a month, um, continues to expand as well. So, um, you know, if people are saying that breath is weakening, they're either, you know, looking at the charts with their eyes closed or they're looking at the data upside down. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good insight into that. Even in uptrends, we see sort of like retracements now and again. At this point, are you expecting some sort of like 
pull back even in, in, in this sort of, if he, even if it is in an uptrend? Um, or can it just keep on pushing higher with, with the sort of demand in the market at the moment? Both. I mean, listen, we're going to get pullbacks. In June, we got a whole bunch of pullbacks. And then when you see those pullbacks, what we like to do is look to see what the relative strength uh, looks like and what areas are are showing the most resiliency when the rest of the market is under pressure. And throughout June, we were noticing, right, when the stocks, stock market was selling off, it had some pretty bad days, pretty bad weeks. Which one stood out? The, the internet stocks, the biotechnology stocks, social media, internet retail, same names that were showing relative strength in March when the market was falling apart and suggested buying those names, the Zooms, DocuSign, you know, all of those things, Regeneron, all these names, Activision, the video game stocks, you know, doing very, very well. And those names, you know, Snap, Peloton, and all these names just continue to do really, really well. So I think it's more a function of, buying stocks that are going up and less about the indexes themselves because if you're worried so much about a correction in the S&P 500 and you own energy stocks like mm. that's probably like a terrible way to live you know I'd rather be buying stocks that are going up and so I mean you've mentioned a few already actually but um any stocks in particular that you've got your eye on or um in fact ETFs yeah I mean listen go to iBuy I-B-U-Y which is the internet retail index fund and just go look at the components um a lot of great names a lot of great charts in there look at ipay ipay uh you know which is the internet uh excuse me uh the mobile payments index fund uh so go in there and look at those you know the squares paypals of the world so go check those guys out um you know something like the dow jones internet index fund fdn frank david nancy check out those components and then just on an individual level, you know, what stocks do we like? I mean, look at the video game stocks, Activision, EA, those names continue to work. You know, we, we like them. Uh, we, we think those are the areas we want to focus on, not get cute with materials and energy and industrials. You know, for me, if we can, if we can focus less on the indexes and more on individual components that are doing well, I think that will be advantageous in the coming months. Okay. With that in mind, have you got any preference generally between sort of ETFs or small funds that might be focused on particular sectors as opposed to individual stocks? Or is it not, it's not obviously not as simple as that, but generally what, what, what are you sort of leaning towards more? Yeah, so for us, the analysis is at the index and sector level. So we're looking at all of these indexes, whether we're going to trade the ETF or not. It's part of the analysis. Mm -hmm. And then we'll break it down to the individual components to, to buy the stocks. Our clients all have different time horizons and overall objectives for that matter. And they have different goals. So, you know, a lot of our financial advisor clients, rather than buying Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, rather just be in the financials ETF because that's what they do for their clients. You know, an individual trader, a hedge fund trader, uh, he does, he's not going to touch the ETF because there's not enough juice in it. He'll look or she'll look for one of the components. Um, so it really just depends on your overall objectives. Sometimes in the ETF, like a GDX, for example, it's just a clean level and you could trade against, you know, certain levels. So the ETF works, options on the ETF if you really need the juice. Um, so I think it really depends on the situation. I normally prefer to be in the equities, but that's just me. And it, again, it depends on your uh, objectives. There's no right or wrong answer. It just depends on what it is that you're looking for. Yeah.
And if we could just like wind it back and if you could give us a little bit of an introduction about how you got to where you are today, I think the audience really like to know how, how you got there. You know, I started, uh, I started as an intern at Merrill Lynch in 2003, so 17 years ago, actually. Wow, I didn't realize it was 17 years, geez. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I fell in love with the market right away, love at first sight. And then a few years into Wall Street, you know, I hit that, that proverbial fork in the road. And it's like, okay, do I study fundamental analysis? Do I learn about companies and get my CFA? Or do I want to learn more about stocks and trading and technical analysis and get my CMT? And at the time, this was like 05, maybe. Yeah, 05. And I was like, this, you know, or 06, something like that. And I'm like, you know, it seems like a lot more sense, technical analysis. And little did I know how important that decision would end up being. Uh, you know, I, I wound up passing those exams in 2008. Uh, talk about perfect timing. Um, so I, I had some success in 08 and 09 when a lot of people were struggling and, you know, the right people were around me to watch me succeed in that environment. And that wound up, you know, you know, putting me in the right place down the road. I started a financial blog in 2010, uh, which was pretty early for that back then. Uh, that was 10 years ago. And uh, ultimately, you know, today, it's probably the most widely read research firm of all time. That's amazing. Congrats. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> and is it, is it right to say that um, Paul Tudor Jones is one of your, your mentors then? Not just me, everybody. You know, we, you know, we all read Market Wizards. We've all seen that 1987 documentary. Like, how do you not, how does that not get you amped? You know, when you hear him say certain things, talk about risk management, you know, his success, obviously the things he's doing in Africa, you know, so he's never met me. I mean, maybe one day I get lucky and I meet him. But, uh, you know, he might not know it, but he's certainly a mentor to me. And I know for a fact, he's a mentor to a lot of people I know. And if you had, um, you know, one lesson that was really sort of helped you, is there something you could, you could, you could choose or? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm butchering the, the quote, but it's more like, you know, something along the lines of like, I'm, I'm focused on protecting the money I have is more important than looking and going out to get more money. I forget what the exact quote is, but something like that. It's more like playing defense is, is, is more important than playing offense, like something along those lines. Um, another good one is a 200 day moving average, just for like folks at home listening, like if I can have one, keep it simple, stupid uh, risk management tool, what would it be? And Paul Tudor Jones's 200 day moving average is, is a great one. You know, bad things happen below a, a 200 day moving average. So I think his exact quote is, if it's below the 200 day, I'm out. <laughs> And um, it'll save you a lot of headaches. That's for damn sure. <laughs> oh, thanks very much, JC. And uh, if we go back to sort of a current market again, and um, thanks for giving a, a sort of bit of background about your, your history. Um, in the iShares biotech ETF has been quite an interesting one. that has been on Twitter uh, around quite a few people I've been following recently um, because we're sort of like on, on the verge of a multi-year breakout. I, I think you've been watching that one as well. And what are those charts saying to you at the moment is, is there, I think, I don't know if it's properly broken out yet. Is there a risk of a fake breakout or do you see this one as a longer term trend that's emerging? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll give you the exact levels, um, but it's hard not to like a breakout like this. Look at the IBB after a monster run. I mean, this thing was up, what, like 400% uh, off the lows in 2009. So in five years, returned like 400%, something astronomical, and then did nothing for five more years, which I think makes perfect sense. You know, that was well-deserved digestion. So look at IBB. And if we're above 130, I think it could be long. And uh, let's see, from a price target standpoint, we're looking at 180. 
So if we're above 130, the bet we're making is that this is a, a classic, uh, you know, a bottoming process or consolidation, digestion of former gains, whatever it is you want. Um, we're resolving higher. And what that means to us is that the demand has finally been able to absorb all of the overhead supply that has been in place and been dominating for five years. Us being able to proceed is evidence that that supply has dried up and we don't see real supply coming into 180. And, you know, that's a, you know, we're talking 35, 40% higher from here. What, what would be the uh, signs that is definitely rising above that level? Would you look for a, like a weekly or a monthly close? It's already above it. It's a go. Let's go, baby. All day. <laughs> um, and you, you've already mentioned as well. So, um, I'd like to swing back to the sectors that are interesting you the most at the moment. So there's biotech, gaming, internet retail. Any others? Mobile payments. Uh, the internet stocks in general. Look at FDN, the Dow Jones Internet Index Fund. FDN breaking out to new highs. If we're below overhead supply, um, you know, in the sector like industrials, like materials, like energy you know it's just it's a tougher trade could it work sure but for what why are you gonna mess around you know there's stocks that look great you know uh so you'd be basically these sort of sectors we're buying on any any sort of weakness just like we have recently yeah totally there's been a lot of uh, chatter about tech stocks being immune to sort of covid and actually a lot of them is positive for because of you know demands uh, like skyrocketed and that's obviously coming through in the charts. Would you, would you say that's true? Are they, are they fundamentally just going to do well through, regardless of if it gets any worse? Listen, I can't speak in terms of the fundamentals. I have no idea, nor do I have any interest. Um, that's not really anything that concerns us. Um, the price behavior speaks for itself. Is it doing well in this environment under the COVID conditions? Sure. But it was doing well before that. So you can say, oh, they're immune because of COVID. But the relative strength has been there for years. So this is nothing new. This is just a cute narrative uh, that they can use to fill airtime to people that have nothing better to do than watch TV or whatever. You know what I mean? But it's nothing new. It's a cute story, but it's nothing new. And yeah, so you probably answered this question as well, but your investment choices are 100% technically based. Is that, is that right? And if, if we say that, that you don't really look at any of the fundamentals because it's all, you know. No, I... I I think the fundamentals are a complete waste of time. I, I, I understand the politically correct thing to say is that, you know, technicals and fundamentals and use both. But like, I don't have a boss. I can say whatever I want. You know, I think it's a waste of time because, sure, you could do that fundamental analysis and know more about the company. But the way I look at it is you could be using that time to do more technical analysis. So it's, it's an opportunity cost, not to mention you're, you're diluting the information by, by bringing in another bias, um, no, number two. And number three, if you're a fundamental technical fusion guy, right, and the, the fundamentals look good, but the, the chart looks terrible, you're not going to buy it. And if the fundamentals look bad, but the chart looks good, you're going to buy it. So then what do you need the fundamentals for? Yeah. Um, and it, so there's some truth, do you think, in the fact that anything that has good fundamentals is all, all based in the charts anyway? the charts express well more of the, or more of the actual like like demand or you know supply side of, of the market anyway it's the market's perception of the fundamentals so by by doing technical analysis we're looking at the fundamentals but we're letting everybody else do all the work mm -hmm. that, that's an interesting way to look at it, actually that's that's right first time someone said it like that and that makes a lot of sense um 
And in terms of the NASDAQ, maybe SP 500, what levels should people be looking at? 181. 181 in the NASDAQ 100, QQQ. If we're above 181, I don't want to hear a bearish uh, a thesis. We need to be buying stocks very aggressively. The S&P 500 is above 3,000. I don't want to hear a bearish thesis. We need to be buying uh, stocks very aggressively. Those are the levels. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's good. What's your opinion on the sort of divergence? Because obviously a lot of people have been chatting about it. Again, might be just noise. Uh, the divergence between like current market prices and the economic data um, or potentially the economic data that might, might, come, might be coming soon. How does, how, how does that influence, or does it not influence your decision at all? Does it not matter? It doesn't matter to me because economic data is backward looking when the market is a forward looking discounting mechanism. So the market's pricing in economic data quarters from now. So to be looking at the economic data from last quarter, that seems, talk about a waste of time. That doesn't make any sense at all. And how, how are stocks performing relative to other asset types at the moment? I know you keep a, a close eye on that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a big one. So, you know, stocks versus it's, their alternatives, like gold and bonds, for example, broke down on March the 6th, in early March, right? Broke key support relative to those other two very important asset classes. And then since then, we have now reverted to that former support, uh, if you will. So now it's like, all right, who's going to take charge? Um, you know, it's been gold and bonds on a relative basis, bigger picture. Can stocks take charge here? That's the big question. We haven't seen that evidence yet, uh, but they're certainly set up to. And if rates break out uh, and bonds roll over, you know, that's, that's uh you know, consistent with evidence of risk appetite for equities, not the safe haven of bonds. Yeah. Um, and what about gold? Is that telling you anything as well? Is it similar? You know, we're, we're hitting, we're getting close to our targets. We've been super bullish since February. It's been a great trade. You know, we took one gold stock off today, for example, as an options trade. So, you know, the trades worked very, very well since February. We're starting to get near our levels. Uh, so I would, I would probably start shying back a little bit and let things reset. Uh, but it's been a great trade, no complaints. How do you how do you how do you choose your profit targets? And if you're if we say this, if gold or whatever is in a, a strong uptrend, how do you compare that to if we say in the Nasdaq 100 is it as well? Why are you coming out of one and you're looking the other potentially to go sort of heavily long on? Yeah. So, so gold's below overhead supply from 2011, from the 2011 high. So we know there, there's sellers up there. There's dead bodies there. And we're getting there. You know, yesterday was, the, there's only one, month, one other month in history that closed above yesterday's close in gold uh, on a monthly closing basis. And that was August of 2011. So we're back up to those areas now. So there's overhead supply. So I would expect uh, to see some churning. And, you know, throughout the summer, wouldn't surprise me to see a sloppy sort of mess in the gold market in terms of, because that's what former overhead supply. In the case of the NASDAQ that we're making all time highs, there is no former overhead supply. So we use Fibonacci projections that take the QQQ to 280 is our projection. Uh, that's where I think we're going. That's, very, that's really interesting. Uh, and so if there was a strong close above that um, previous all time high in gold, that to you would be like, because potentially, so hitting all-time highs basically would be a, extreme, a bullish sort of move for gold as well. You'd be looking to... Uh, maybe not just closing at a new high. It's going to need some more. 
Probably time. Yeah, okay. You say you're an inter intermediate term, uh, sort of time horizon trader, um, typically analyzing price action on weekly and monthly charts. Um, how long do you typically hold positions for and why do you, do you sort of like enjoy that style of trading? Well, let, uh, we look at daily, weekly and monthly charts. I think for me, an intermediate term time horizon is looking out weeks and months. We want to make money this quarter. So I don't care what happens today. Uh, and I certainly don't care what happens next year. I'll worry about next year, next year. Um, so and one day doesn't make a trend. So for me, that sweet spot is that, you know, looking out weeks and months, holding time, you know, four to, four to 12 weeks, four to eight weeks, uh, sort of that sweet spot. Um, I don't, I, I, for me, I'm not a good day trader and being chained to a computer all day. Like, that just doesn't seem like a pleasant lifestyle. And then in terms of, you know, being a long-term investor, I don't even know what that is. Looking out next year, like, you know, you, you're already talking about what you're going to do next year. Like, I don't even know what I'm having for dinner, uh, yet alone what I'm going to be doing next year. So for me, that sweet spot, that intermediate term time horizon works for me. How do I do that? Well, on monthly, uh, at the end of every month, I look at monthly charts. Um, it's just 12 times a year. No big deal. Forces you to take a step back and identify the direction of the primary trends, which is what you and I are discussing here today. And we break it down to the weekly charts on, at the end of every week on a weekly basis. Um, and then we look at daily charts for more tactical opportunities that fall within the framework of those longer term time horizons. So it really is that funnel down uh, and top down approach is what we call it. And if something was in a like a really strong uh, uptrend, uh, the NASDAQ prior to this big drop, uh, big drop has been in that for quite some time. Are you saying you would sort of like avoid holding positions for, you know, a year or something? You'd, you'd be taking, you know, a quarterly trade or whatever multiple times during that year or yeah i would never hold anything for a year that's just not anything we'd ever do and so what's the primary concern there i'm just just going to be interested in and your thoughts on that a lot can happen in a year <laughs> so if you're buying something today because of something you think is going to happen a year from now like a lot can change in those next 12 months so for me like what's you know it, it just doesn't make any sense like i i just can't fathom uh think you know trying to price in what's going to happen a year from now that doesn't that's that's too hard for me too many things outside of your control that might happen yeah totally so for me we set a risk level we set a price target and then when our price target is hit we sell it it doesn't mean we can't re-enter trading is free these days so it doesn't matter um so we can always re-enter like for example like zoom uh a few months ago hit our target reset up we bought it again hit our target again same thing happened in DocuSign. Hit our target. We set new targets, hit our target again. So like, there's nothing wrong with re-entering and setting another trade within the, uh, the same uh, uptrend, arguably. You know what I mean? There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good way to look at it. In fact, I encourage it. <laughs> why? Well, if, it, if it's working, why not? <laughs> and how, in terms of your sort of profit targets, how do you sort of uh, define them so that you know that their potential to be hit within that time period? Well, listen, we've got longer term targets in the longer term charts and shorter term targets in the shorter term charts, right? So um, that, that how do I set them is a combination of uh, Fibonacci retracements and extensions and former support and resistance is really how we set them. In order for them to uh, uh, fit within that time horizon, Mr. Market calls me and says, hey, JC, how long do you wanna be in this stock? And then the market acts accordingly. Now, what, they, what actually happens is sometimes our target gets hit in one day. And I could be like, oh, we're going to be in this stock for a month. Nope, we were in it for one day. 
we can also get stopped out the very next day. We can also put out a trade that actually never even gets executed because it never breaks out above the level we're looking for, right? So, and then a stock could just do nothing and then hit its target in six months. That's certainly possible. I would say that volatility does play a factor. So if volatility is higher, your targets are probably going to get hit a lot quicker. And we just saw that in March and April and May. Uh, when volatility is low, it's probably going to take a little bit longer because the market likes to take an escalator up and an elevator down. What is it about technical analysis that attracts you most to it? Why do, why do you think, it, you know, when you, when you had that decision earlier on in your life that you, you sort of went down the route of technical analysis? Yeah, you know, I just live by the mantra that pretty much everyone's completely full of shit uh, and they have to prove otherwise, right? So that's kind of how I look at it. So I don't trust anybody. Sell side Wall Street analysts, like, do you trust anything they say? I certainly don't. Um, you know, they, their track record is very good. Economists are even worse. Uh, CEOs of companies, you know, they could be lying to you. Uh, they often are, uh, or they could just be wrong. They could just be incorrect. That's very possible too. And, and does happen quite often. Mm. Earnings estimates are just that estimates. They get revised several times, uh, over the coming quarters and even years in the case of like Macy's and other disasters. So um, you know, GDP numbers and all that stuff and unemployment, those are just estimates that are going to get revised in the future. And again, backward looking economic data. So the truth is none of that is trustworthy data, as they say, as the coders say, garbage in, garbage out. So if, that, if that's the information you're using to, to make decisions with, with money at stake, I think you're crazy. Uh, so for me, the only truth that we can trust is price. Because price is never going to lie. Because all what that's saying is that a buyer and a seller both agreed to exchange the right, uh, ha, perform that transaction at a given price on a given date at a specific time, and that's never going to be restated. That's never going to change. That's going to be there forever. And then the next transaction immediately thereafter, and the one before also is recorded and is never going to change, and so forth and so forth. And what do we know for a fact? We know that, that markets, the returns are not uh, equally distributed, right? They're not, it's, they're not at random. Markets trend. And, because, and that can't be denied, right? You could hate technical analysis, uh, call it voodoo or whatever. You can't deny that markets trend. You look at any chart, going back whenever, any stock, you'll see trends. Sometimes they go up for a while. Sometimes they go down for a while. Sometimes longer than others. But they trend. And that's why technical analysis works because we're identifying the direction of primary trends and betting oftentimes that that trend will continue. And because of that, that increases our probabilities of success, not to mention sanity. <laughs> what technical indicators are you referring to most to inform your, your sort of trading strategy? Price, that's the number one technical indicator, price. Everything else is secondary. And so would you, would candlesticks, and are they a base? Would you say that's sort of a price indicator that you look at? Well, a candlestick, a candlestick is just a way to show price. You know, it's just a, it gives you more information than a bar or a line, for example. Um, but all you're looking at is price. And what sort of key sort of things are you looking for in the, in the price to determine something that would be interesting to you? Trends. Are they, is it going up or down? Or sideways? And are you specifically looking for things such as breakouts or 
of of previous all-time highs. Yeah. These are the sort of things you that you're looking for in the patterns. Of course, because think about it. What is an uptrend? Yeah. Higher lows and higher highs. And then so you get an uptrend, you get a, a nice rally over several weeks, several months, several years. And then what happens? Stocks are like human beings. They can't just run and run forever. They got to stop, take a breather, drink some water, some Gatorade, you know, take a nap, come back the next day, you know, digest, right? Everything, you know, when you're working out, like you have to like stop because you can't just keep going. Yeah. Stocks are the same way. And then they consolidate. And then they digest those gains. And then, as you say, they break out. And that breakout is the higher high, confirming it's still in an uptrend. So biotechnology, great example, went up 400% or something over a five-year period, did nothing for five years, and is now breaking out, essentially continuing that long-term uptrend. So that's what we're looking for. It's nothing fancy. You know, keep it simple, stupid. And you also um, mentioned previously that you use RSI, uh, in some cases, to support your decision-making um, is there is there a certain way in particular you use that to support? Is it support support the sort of momentum in, in, in the trends and stuff? Yeah, and again to reiterate, anything that's not price is like a far second <laughs> with respects to our, our analysis. Price is very very important. If I haven't made that perfectly clear, momentum is is just a fact of life um, in in the market. It exists. You know, it, 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 part of technical analysis that actually be scientifically proven that momentum actually does exist uh, so we look for that momentum we look for relative strength i use a 14 period rsi you know when momentum is when rsi is getting above 70 that's evidence those are uh, that, that, that's characteristic of, a, of an uptrend right that's what we see so we calculate breath measurements and try to come up with a number of how many stocks are showing those bullish momentum characteristics and you asked me about breath before um, you know, we just got a thrust in, in, in momentum above 70 that we hadn't seen in, in 30 years. Um, so we use momentum not just on an individual basis, but collectively uh, to, to uh, gauge breath, deterioration or improvement. And you've already, um, already mentioned that you also use the 200 SMA. Um, can you explain your, your hatred of, of, of the flat 200 SMA? Why should people stay away from that? Yeah, I mean, listen, if you love headaches, you know, trade stocks right near flat 200-day moving averages. I promise you, you'll get more headaches. Uh, you know, it's just a, a flat 200-day moving average is characteristic of a sideways market, you know, a range-bound market. So in markets like that, you know, we probably maybe want to be uh, taking advantage, you know, betting that stocks are probably going to continue to be messy, you know, in an environment like that. Um, you know, it's just, it's not worth it. Look for something that's not like that. Um, and can you possibly take me through your, your process for finding opportunities. I know um, you've mentioned as well before that once a week you go through about 3,000 charts, just, just the bars. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's nothing like putting on some music and um, just going chart by chart by chart. And I'll tell you what, you know, I, I call the boys and I'm like, you know, we have our team meetings and everything. And I'm like, hey guys, run the scan. And I want to know the percentage of stocks that are doing this and doing that. And you know, you want to know something? I do that because our institutional clients love it. And, you know, the boys love running those numbers and all that. But the truth is, based on going through all those charts myself, I can pretty much tell you, you know, to, and I'm pretty close usually uh, to what the actual number is with, with, with whatever it is that we're doing, whether we're looking for divergences, we're looking for breakouts, whatever it is, I could pretty much get close to the number just by going chart by chart by chart. And the boys run the scans and, you know, we get the exact numbers and we can plot it over time and all that fancy stuff. Uh, but there's just, 
There's no replicating, you know, depending on what time of the day, you know, it's a cup of coffee, if it's at night, glass of wine, maybe, um, you know, put on some tunes and then just go one by one. Let's go, baby. Go one by one. And um, is it, is, do, you, do you use, you, you mentioned top down approach to, to, to the markets. Are you looking at making sure there's, there's strong uptrends in the index before looking at individual stocks? Is that sort of what you're implying there? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a lot. It, 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 it's a lot more comfortable to be aggressively long a stock or a group of stocks or sectors if the indexes are also going up. You know, if the if the stock market's under pressure and it looks like it's going to go lower, we really need to be careful with our risk management, what stocks we're buying, why we're buying them. You know, because if we're in a downtrend, breakouts tend to fail. <laughs> it's just what it is. So if you're buying breakouts in a downtrend in, in a in a bear market or whatever it is, like good luck with that. That's it's not a good strategy. So we have to tailor our decision making to, you know, the macro environment. Um, and it's not, you know, it's when we say the top down, it's not just at the index level, but at the intermarket level, intermarket complex, and then assets, you know, stocks as an asset class globally, FTSE, Euro stocks, Latin America, Japan, Singapore, China, you know, it's the whole world. Yeah. Do you tend to stick to sort of US equities and um, indexes as well? Nope. Every, everything in the whole world. Oh, right. Wow. That's pretty good. And do you, stay, do you typically stay away from downtrends? You more sort of like, you like to look for uptrends? You're not shorting stocks? Or... No, I love downtrends. In fact, I prefer them because uh, money's made a lot faster and lost a lot faster too in downtrends, right? Because the way the markets work is that it's an escalator up, elevator down. So, yeah. you know, on a downtrend, you're going to make money a lot faster. I shouldn't say I prefer them. It's just it is what it is. I don't prefer one over the other. The idea is to identify the market environment and then trade accordingly. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say I love uh, downtrends. It's just, it is what it is, you know? If it happens so, because it can happen really very quickly, can, uh, downtrends can happen and, and finish. How, if you're looking at monthly charts, potentially, like, I mean, this snap, like sort of down move was over really quickly. How, how, when, when, how long do you wait until... Because by the time you sort of like see it in a downtrend, it's already sort of made the moves. How do you know it's going to go down more? How do you approach that? So we were, we were the biggest bulls on Wall Street in the fourth quarter last year. Buy everything, buy breakouts, all of that. And then I would get asked, they're like, well, JC, what is it going to take for you to be bearish? Um, because a lot of people were surprised at just how bullish I was uh, from last summer. And I'm like, well, we need to see deterioration in market breadth. We need to see fewer stocks making new highs, fewer indexes making new highs. We're seeing the opposite. We keep seeing more and more and more, right? So that's what we're seeing in the fourth quarter last year. Yeah. And coming to January this year, regional banks had already peaked in December. So the amount of stocks making new 52-week highs peaked on January the 16th, actually. So we were seeing fewer and fewer sectors making new highs, fewer and fewer stocks uh, showing bullish momentum characteristics just breath deterioration after breath deterioration again and again and again. So by the time early February came around, we were shorting everything in sight, sell everything, buy bonds. It was really a breath deterioration scenario where we knew we did not want to own stocks. In fact, we were shorting them very aggressively uh, in February, well before any crash. Not that I knew there was going to be a crash. I just knew we didn't want to own stocks. Whether stocks went sideways, down a little or down a lot, I didn't know. But in any of those scenarios, we didn't want to own stocks. So it was less about what's going to happen and more about whatever happens, happens. We don't want to be involved sort of scenario. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. This stock market crash 
came after more warning signs than any stock market crash in world history. In February, the S&P made new highs, the Dow made new highs, and the NASDAQ made new highs. The Russell 2000 did not. Mid-caps did not. Micro-caps did not. The Value Line Index did not. The Dow Jones Transportation Average continued to diverge negatively. Classic Dow Theory sell signal. Um, breath deterioration. The list of 21-day highs deteriorating. The list of 63-day highs deteriorating. The list of uh, 52-week highs deteriorating. The list of stocks showing bullish momentum characteristics deteriorating. An expansion in new lows. Regional banks made new all-time lows relative to the S&P 500 before the market peaked. Like, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but it was quite obvious. Okay. And so if I'm just, if there's a scenario, we've got the NASDAQ going up now. If other indices showed weakness, would that affect your opinion of the NASDAQ and if it could maintain the positive momentum? Yeah, I mean, listen, they're going to move together. You know, the Nasdaq's outperforming, but they're, they move together. The correlations are through the roof. So they're going to, it's just what it is. If the S&P starts to break below 3,000, if the financials XLF is below 23, holding below 23, I think that's a problem. Copper below 255, that's a problem. You know, if those things start to happen, you know, we'll question our bullish thesis. I'm happy to. You know, I came into the year super bullish, and then that changed, you know, three, four weeks later. So, you know, I'm happy to change my mind. I don't care. I really don't care what happens. The S&P 500 could double or get cut in half. I couldn't care less. Gold can go to zero tomorrow. Won't matter to me. You know, so I don't have like a bias. You know, I, I, I'm too old to care what happens. I just want to be on the right side. And when, you, when, you, when we're talking about market breadth, is that's, you just mean, so various sectors when the indices are moving together in, in the same direction or are they diverging? That, that's sort of what you're talking about. Is that right? Yeah, breath is like, it's what's happening under the surface, right? So if, you're, if your car breaks down and you take it to the auto repair guy, right? He's not just going to look at the car and be like, oh, nice red car. It must be the transmission. No, he's got to open up the hood and see what's going on inside and see what's wrong. Or if there is even anything wrong, maybe just round it again. So just, that, that's it. When you go to the doctor because you're sick, the doctor's not going to look at you and be like, oh, must be your kidneys. You know, he's got to look inside of you and see what's going on, right? In order to give a proper diagnosis. Yeah. In the stock market, it's the same thing. It, sure, it's a stock market and we could trade S&P futures and the NASDAQ and what did the Dow do today and all that. But at the end of the day, it's a market of stocks. There are 500 stocks in the S&P 500. There are 2,000 stocks in the Russell 2000. So it's a market of stocks and it's a weight of the evidence. So if the indexes are making new highs, we want to see more and more sectors making new highs, more and more stocks making new highs, yeah. more and more stocks showing bullish momentum characteristics. When that's happening, that's characteristic of a bull market. That's been happening for months, right? And sure enough, we keep making new highs. Makes perfect sense. When that stops happening and we start getting a deterioration, in other words, the list of stocks making new 21-day highs list of stocks making new 63-day highs. If that starts to deteriorate, and it will at some point, when that does, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to adjust our strategy. We're ready to do that. Um, you know, ready, willing, and able. Uh, but clearly, the market is in no rush. So why should we be? Yeah. You're also known for using line charts uh, for ratios uh, to draw up relative performance charts. Yeah. What, what's so special about, I mean, we've been discussing a little bit, what's so special about keeping an eye on the relative performance charts. Is this mainly about the market breadth like we've been talking about? Kind of. It's, it's similar, but it's, you know, think about relative strength. It, 
if the stock market's if the stock stock market's under pressure, and there's a sector, or a few sectors, or a few stocks that are not under pressure when the rest of the market is, that's evidence of accumulation. That's institutional accumulation. That's fidelity that has to buy a bunch of the stock saying, come to Papa, right? They are supporting that stock. So by, that's what we call relative strength. And that's usually a good indication uh, of, of future performance because they were already buying it. So think of relative strength as like, you know, putting a beach ball under, under, underwater, right? Like in a pool. And if you put it underwater, you could feel the beach ball pressuring up against your arms, right? And then when you release the pressure, the ball shoots up in the air. Think of the relative strength as the same thing. When stocks are pushing up against new highs while the rest of the market is under pressure, when that pressure eases up in the market, that stock's going to shoot up in a very similar way to the beach ball. That's relative strength. Have you got an example of, of an interesting comparison you've made recently or been looking at recently uh, with, the, with these line charts ratios? Yeah, of course. We actually built uh, on uh, March 9th, we built something we called the coronavirus index. And it was just a list of uh, all the stocks showing the highest momentum uh, and relative strength. And those turned out to be monsters. Uh, Newmont Mining, Activision, DocuSign, Zoom, Shopify, Snap, all these stocks that were you know, showing up. I, I could pull up the, the scan actually and, and, and read off the list. But um, let's see, Coronavirus Index, all-star charts, let's see. There it is. Look at this. So this was on uh, March the 10th. Uh, Dollar General, Gilead, Clorox has been a monster. Uh, T-Doc, another one. Alibaba, Netflix, WeWork, Domino's Pizza. I mean, those were the names then showing relative strength. <laughs> it's like a crystal ball into the future. Well, the relative strength often is. It's not my crystal ball. It's everybody's, you know, it's, you know, it's not secret information. It's public info. <laughs> And um, do you use any sentiment analysis to help? Again, you know, to, to not your main thing, but does it help support in any way your decision-making? Definitely. You know, the problem with sentiment is that it's hard to get, number one. Like, it's hard to get good sentiment data. Number two, everyone's always saying, oh, it's two this way, it's two this way. But usually it's neither, it's somewhere in the middle. So sentiment is really only truly valuable when it's at crazy extremes. Um, and a lot of that is anecdotal, so it's really hard to quantify. Um, but there is some quanti quantifiable stuff, like the Commitment of Traders Report, National Association of Investment uh, of Active Investment Managers. Um, you know, the AAI is all right, I guess. Um, you know, but we're also doing some work. We we have the uh, Robinhood API, and we're you know we're diving in to get uh, some indication of you know a heads up when a bunch of crazy kids are buying a stock on their phones. You know, stuff like that. Um, we're working on it. We're always trying to improve. I'm good buddies with uh, Jason Gopher, longtime client of his as well. I refer a lot of people to him. He does great sentiment work uh, over at sentimenttrader.com. Shout out, Jason. And you talk a lot about only, you know, only focusing on high probability trades. Is there sort of like a checklist of stuff that determines that what is a high probability trade for you? Well, sometimes it's a lower probability trade and you're just taking a punt and volatility's low and um, a stock uh, has potential to really explode if you get it right. Um, and you could buy a way out of the money call option that maybe the probabilities is not, is not great. But if you're right, it's a grand slam. So it's all about finding a balance between putting on too much risk and not putting, up, putting on enough risk, right? And that's a that's an inner battle that we all have to fight for ourselves.
so yeah, I mean, this segues into an interesting question. Um, how do you approach the risk management generally then, like risk reward ratios, et cetera? What are you putting into play typically? Yeah, I mean, we got to be able to make six to 10 times what we're risking for it to be worth it. You wow. know, if it's a two to one, you know, bet on a football game or something, you know what I mean? So like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, so we look for risk versus reward opportunities are skewed in our favor, number one. Number two, when there's money on the line, we get crazy, right? We start turning into Looney Tunes. So in order to avoid your own personal, you know, everyone, everybody thinks that the Fed is against them and that the market's against them and like, oh, the, it's manipulated. No, you idiot. The only, the, your biggest hurdle is yourself, right? Look in the mirror. It's what's going on between the ears that you need to worry about, not the Fed. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, setting where we're wrong before we enter the trade is very important and where we're right before we enter the trade. So at the end of the day, once the trade is on, you're not a trader anymore. Now you just let the market do its thing. If it hits your target, it sells it automatically. If it breaks your risk, it sells it automatically. Yeah. Put in the trade, set the parameters. And you know, whip out the popcorn. And typically, so you you only have one profit target, then really. And you know, like, not always. Sometimes there are several. Sometimes it's like okay. Um, and then it depends if it's equities or options. So in the case of equities, it's like okay, we're buying it at hundred. If it gets to one fifteen, we'll take half off and we'll sell the rest at one thirty. But we'll, that'll be predetermined. And then in the case of options, if we're selling premium, right, collecting a credit, for example, um, when that credit that when the potential reward hits 50% of the potential profit target, uh, we take it off the table. Uh, in, in, a, in a long position, when we're putting on a debit position in options, when it doubles, we take half off the table, right? So there, there's, there's, pri there's price targets, and in the options market, there's profit targets. So th those are the differences. Do you, um, I, I didn't actually realize that you traded ops, options so much as well. Is there a preference? Um, and why? No, not necessarily. Well, sometimes, sometimes you want to be in a stock and the risk isn't as well defined as you'd like. You, you can't just put like a level and say, okay, if it breaks that level, I'm wrong. So in that case, the way to manage risk is to own premium because if you're dead wrong and it goes to zero the next day, that's the most you can lose. So uh, by owning premium, it's a great way to manage risk in a situation that is more difficult than you'd like. Um, so that's one example. Um, uh, and sometimes the stock is just a clean risk reward, call it a day. Why, you know, you don't want to fight time because with options, there's an element of time involved. Um, so, and then sometimes the market's in a range and you don't want to be long or short. You just want to like, you know, sell straddles or something. Um, you know, so it, it really, there are option strategies to help you uh, in certain situations. You know, if you're long a stock that's running into resistance, you don't want to sell the stock. You could sell premium, sell out of the money calls, collect some juice and, and lower your cost basis. Like there's all sorts of great uh, ways to use them. And you're also a big advocate of anticipating market moves before they happen. So you obviously get the, the big return and because otherwise if you're waiting, miss out on, on the stock basically. And how, how do you make sure you set up for that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the goal, right? To get in before the market moves because once it's moved, you missed it, right? So the idea is to look for them and we look, you know, we use a variety of, of tools, like I said, breath and momentum and relative strength and price behavior. We use all that stuff to make those determinations. Yeah. So you look, is it things such as you're looking for stocks that have just started a big uptrend or 
have reached all to all, all time highs. It depends on the it depends on the environment. It depends more on the market environment than the stock itself. So first we have the market environment, and then we decide what kinds of stocks we're looking for. Okay, okay. So sometimes they're breakouts, sometimes they're near lows, sometimes they're in the middle. I mean, it really just depends on the environment. There's no because if you're going to come up with just one strategy and you're always going to shove that down the market's throat, regardless of the environment, like you're doomed to fail. The strategy shouldn't be your strategy no matter what. It should be, okay, what's the market doing? Now let's build a strategy to take advantage of that. Awesome. And to finish up, I've just got this uh, quick fire round. It's like five or six questions that not, not really needing a, a big answer. It's just like whatever first comes to your head. Okay. So the first one is top tip for newbie traders. Try to blow up as quickly as possible so that you learn. Because it won't, it won't be until you blow up that, you, that you'll finally get it. So make sure you blow up quickly. Don't wait, don't wait till you're 50 or 60 to blow up. How do, you, how do you wind down after a day's trading? You know, put on some music, um, you know, open up a bottle of wine. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a certified sommelier, so I study wine uh, for fun. Um, and I, I, I drink it while I study. Yeah. <laughs> Where or who do you go through, if, if you do, to, for market insights? Price action. Yeah. Uh, top tip for your younger self? Listen more. Do you have a favorite charting software? Uh, so Koifin, definitely. K-O-Y-F-I-N, uh, for sure. It's free. Um, I also use Optima. Uh, they're great. Optuma, they're great. And you know, lastly, you're a, as you mentioned, you're a fan of wine. Is there a favorite sort of red uh, you could recommend? Ooh, favorite red. So many good ones. Um, well, a couple. <laughs> I've been drinking, uh, I've been on a little Spanish kick lately. Uh, you can get a nice garnacha from Navarra is, uh, is lovely. Uh, great pricing too, because not a lot of people I feel like are drinking that. Um, it's right next to Rioja and Rioja Reserva is going to be great juice. I love it. In fact, I was drinking it last night. That's going to be a price a little bit more. Uh, you get some great stuff on the other side of the river. Check that out. And um, if, if you're in Rioja, if you like the Rioja stuff, I like Rioja Alta myself, the Tempranillo from there. Beautiful. And then if you want to go Italian, you know, the Brunellos are beautiful. Uh, the the Montepulciano is amazing. If you get a, a Rosso um, of either, you're going to be able to save yourself a few bucks. And it's great juice, too. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks very much, JC. That's been amazing. Really appreciate the time. And um, I was just going to say, so you, obviously our listeners can catch you on Twitter at All Star Charts and online at um, allstarcharts.com. I think that's right. Um, is there anything you wanted to say before you go? I know you've got a new uh, charting school that's out um, that these guys might be interested in. Yeah, I encourage everyone, um, go check it out, chartingschool.com. Uh, you know, I lay it all out. I'm very fortunate that I've become friendly. You know, I have a podcast. Uh, if you go search All-Star Charts on iTunes, you know, I've interviewed the best technical analysts in the world. Uh, we're over 100 episodes in. Uh, so just between learning from them, learning from my predecessors, living in New York City for so long, not to mention my own mistakes and so many of them over so many years, you know, this isn't six hours. I gave you everything I've learned uh, and you have lifetime access. So you can go through it as many times as you want. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, man. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, 
this might be of interest to you. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during a trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends, and in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new podcasts, stock reports, or events from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. Until next time.